This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hi, I'm actor and comedian Griffin Newman. And I'm film critic David Sim. Together, we host Blank Check, a movie podcast where week by week we overanalyze directors' complete filmographies. In each new series, we discuss filmmakers who experience early success and are issued a series of blank checks by Hollywood to make their own crazy passion projects. Now, sometimes those checks clear, and sometimes they bounce, baby. We're joined each week by incredible guests, including actors, writers, and directors. So you can follow Blank Check with Griffin and David on Spotify for new episodes every Sunday. Hello there, it's Jamila Jamil. Are you by any chance listening to this podcast promo while out on a walk? If so, good for you. That's going to make both your mind and your body feel better. On my podcast, I Weigh, this month, we're going to be exploring mental health and talking to amazing guests about other things that you can do to make yourself feel better with guests like Simon Sinek from The Optimism Company, therapist Vienna Farron, comedian Neil Brennan, and more. Listen to I Weigh wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Unspooled Top 3. Today, we have a very, very special guest. We have the one and only Tim Blake Nelson, fellow Oklahoman, which means a great deal to me. And just amazing signature character actor turned star. Of course, he was Delmar O'Donnell in Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? He was, of course, um, the signature Buster Scruggs in The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. But beyond doing Coen Brothers movies uh, and westerns with his name in it, like his new western, Old Henry, a western that just premiered in Venice, where, of course, he plays Old Henry. I don't want to spoil too much about his character. Let's just say he is a quiet farmer with a dark past uh, and a swollen eye and a gigantic mustache and a gun that will eventually get used. Dun, dun, dun. Um, Tim is also a director. He's a Juilliard-trained theater actor. He is a man who knows his art and his film. And he is a man, I think, with really interesting choices. So I'm excited to bring him on to talk about his top three films. Hello, Tim Blake Nelson. I found this to be a really interesting exercise because as a person who is involved in making movies, sometimes as an actor and sometimes as a director and writer, I'm asked, what's your favorite movie? But I never know how to respond because, A, there's always something I love in every movie I watch, no matter how bad the movie is. And as a person who makes movies, there's always something in every movie that I think, wow, they did that in a way I never would have imagined and much better than I would have. Right. No matter how bad the movie is. And then on the sort of converse of that, there are so many movies in which I love everything. And so many movies are my favorite movies. 
And therefore, in answering your question, I had to really organize my thinking and try to structure the response in a way that would be accurate to even vaguely accurate (laughs) to (laughs) what I feel, which is that I have probably a hundred favorite movies. In service of that, I said, well, break it down. Let's choose categories, drama, documentary, comedy. I was also tempted to split it into favorite movie before the Second World War, favorite movie between the Second World War and 1970, favorite movie post-1970, because I think those are three very distinct periods in the history of filmmaking that can be organized. The studio system before the war, the post-war optimism leading into the counterculture movement that stops and leads us up to 70 and then 70 to now the auteur driven film is the way I would describe all that. But I just, I ended up deciding drama, documentary and comedy and was startled to find that they were all made in my lifetime, which right there really makes my list suspect (laughs) <laughs> is Barry Lyndon as a drama better than Grand Illusion or Casablanca or Sweet Smell of Success or five dozen other movies I could name? No, it isn't. But for whatever reason, I alighted on these three. You know, your list is very interesting. I, I was really excited when I saw it. But I will say that in doing the show with Amy, we've watched so many films and there is a certain connection to films that you see in your life that, I- that are contemporary to you in some level or that you feel like you are. I know that there's a certain personal connection that I'll have to certain films that I can't get away from. And I know that there are better films out there. But for me, it ignites me in a, in a way that I, I can't describe it. And I, I think that's been an interesting thing to find in this show as well. Like I can appreciate a lot of different things and I love different things. But there are the films that that. I saw in a theater for the first time with everybody else that resonate more just because I felt like I was a part of it, I guess. But what I love about what you just said, Tim, though, (laughs) is the kind of dual pronged empathy, I'd say. Yeah. Like the dual pronged empathy to find something to love in every film that what you just said about finding something to love in every film is something I try to carry with me because a film ends. You look at that list of credits and you think all of these people tried hard. Well, most of them probably tried very, very hard. And and it's such a human business making a film. And I think living in the auteur de moment that we do, it's easy to forget that people are doing good work across the board that maybe won't get noticed because something else is so distractingly not quite as good. Well, we're excited to have you. We are also here to talk a little bit about your new movie coming out too, which is uh, Old Henry, which looks absolutely uh, amazing. I'm so excited about this film. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about when you make a decision to come on to a film more than an actor or, you know, like, cause you are a producer on this film as well. Yeah. I'm a producer because they asked me. Okay. Uh, so it wasn't, I, I, I really don't like that notion of, uh, of, and it's, it's, it's rampant of mm-hmm. actors coming on to movies and making, getting that title, a condition 
right. of their matriculating. Um, and that's not, that's never been the case with me. And it certainly wasn't on this. They wanted me to, to help them put the movie together and, um, and then work on it as they worked on it. Uh, right. And when I do that, it's always under the condition that the director has the last word. And I make that clear, especially to the other producers, but most of all to the director, because I think the most interesting movies are, na- are made. And of course, I'm in the post 70s uh, era by directors who have final cut in all respects. Mm-hmm. And that was certainly the case on Old Henry. But that's a requirement if I'm going to be a producer. There are two requirements. One, that I do the work. Right. And therefore earn the title. And two, that the director always has the last word. I, I love that. I don't know if you've ever heard this story, and this is, apologize for this like little sidestep, but... No, I want to hear it, whatever uh, did it is. Did you ever hear that when, uh, I guess, Sylvester Stallone wrote the screenplay for Cobra, and it was based off of a book, and then he went back and tried to get his name on the book as written by Sylvester Stallone. He went backwards to the author, and they're like, no, you can't, you didn't write the book. He's like, yeah, but I wrote the movie. He's like, no, 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 yeah, so I want my name to be on the book. (laughs) They never did it, (laughs) but I just love that idea, like that type of producer, it's like, or that type of writer, it's like, no, you've adapted something. You didn't, you didn't just, you don't own it. You don't become the thing. It makes me laugh every time. I just think of that conversation and someone having to tell him, no, 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 you can't say the book is by you. Oh, my God. I cannot wait to share that story. That uh, should be legion. <laughs> Maybe that's a good segue to get into our first film, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Um, another story about people doing ridiculous things that betray the arc of history. Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Uh, from 1975, you've got the whole Python gang, John Cleese, Eric Idle, Terry Gilliam, Terry Jones, telling the story of King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table. Kind of, sort of, I guess. Uh, there's a Trojan rabbit. There's the dreaded Knights Who Say Me. There's a lot of horse poop and general mayhem. Uh, fun fact, studios refused to fund the film, so the financiers included just rock bands who were looking for a place to put their money, like Pink Floyd and Led Zeppelin. And of course, the film has become a major comedy classic. Arthur, King of the Britons, your knights of the round table shall have a task to make them an example in these dark times. Good idea, O oh Lord. Of course it's a good idea. Okay, Tom, why did you pick this film? As you were pointing out earlier, we respond most to films that we get to see in our lifetime. And I consider this not only the best comedy I've ever seen, but a movie that taught me what was possible out there in the world. Is this one of the movies that made you fall in love with film? I mean, I know that you're from Oklahoma. I went to OU. Uh, so Oklahoma represent. Did you watch this while you were still a kid deciding what you wanted to do with your life? I was growing up in Tulsa and they played Monty Python's Flying Circus on PBS at 10 o'clock on Saturday nights. And I never missed it. Every Saturday? Every Saturday night on PBS. This was in the late 70s. No, mid-70s, actually. When I was in sixth grade, I started watching it. And it taught me that anything was possible. That, that 
the chances you could take in trying to provoke laughter or examine how absurd the world is, really is, were unlimited. They seemed to break every rule that I was learning about in school. And not only rules about how to behave, but more importantly, rules about how stories needed to be told. Because what you read in school until you get to your later years, really college, are stories that are told in a straightforward manner without ever breaking the fourth wall and that are meant to conceal the apparatus of storytelling. So there are always, particularly novels, stories that stay contained within themselves and always play by a coherent set of rules that don't ever allow the membrane of narrative to be pierced. So you're, 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 you're tricked into believing everything and following the story because of that. And that's a very good thing. And it's also very important when we're growing up to learn about that and to learn about systems and rules and how they work and can contain the stuff that's important to us. And, some, you know, that's true in mathematics. It's true in science, but it's also true in storytelling and it's true in rhetoric. And you've got to learn all that stuff. So I'm not at all chiding the Conservative narrative. I love conservative narrative. Monty Python broke all the rules, sometimes in a deeply intellectual way, sometimes in an utterly prurient way. And it always worked. It always worked. And in the meantime, you were learning about history and you were learning about philosophy and you were getting a great vocabulary if you looked all their words up. Right. Then they come along with this movie that explodes it even more and does it over two hours. And with the movie was a companion record of Monty Python and the Holy Grail, which exploded it even further. And it was the first, forgive the pretentious vocabulary, I should have said that about 10 minutes ago, um, but <laughs> it was the first meta art I'd ever seen because so much of the movie was about the ridiculousness of the conceits of movie making. Right. And a huge amount of the comedy was about breaking through and saying to the audience, this is a stupid story. It's a silly medium if you really consider it. And ha ha ha, shame on you for getting caught up in it. The joke's on you. But it was always good-natured. So you have a police car coming into a scene, you know, a complete anachronism. Right. And people getting arrested. And you have a guy running at a castle and then a reverse on somebody watching him and then the reverse on the guy running at the castle, and he's further away. <laughs> you have a guy getting his arms and legs chopped off and spurting blood through tubes that are almost visible. Um, 
and and still asking to fight. Uh, you have history, you have philosophy, you have a hilarious nod to the good natured now um, hatred between the French and the British. <laughs> you have you have humor that is absolutely intellectual with a guy talking about, you know, an anarcho um, collectivist commune. And in the same scene, when the Arthur rides off, she says, who's he? And he says, must be a king. How do you know that? Because he hasn't got shit all over him. <laughs> and one of the characters in that scene is a man dressed as a woman making absolutely, making very little effort actually to convince you he's a woman, but foregrounding right. the fact that he's a man. And the movie is just chock-a-block with those disparities and contradictions. And it's got jokes. It's got so many jokes in it that you have throwaway lines that, that you'll only hear after you've seen the movie five times. My favorite of those is in, a, in the very beginning of a scene, and it's just a murmured line, you have Guinevere saying to Arthur, and that, my liege, is how we know the earth to be banana-shaped. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what I'm hearing in you right now, Tim, is that this is a movie that taught you that art could break rules, as you're saying, announce itself and its presence. And that, I mean, I can see, I can see you growing up, going to Juilliard, forming your own kind of ensembles, I'm guessing, there, playing around with forming different characters. There's, there's a theater punk element to Monty Python that I really like, you know, letting you know, letting you see the artifice in there. I get, I, now that I'm picturing this, I can really see how this film shapes you. I'm Katie Rich. I'm one of the hosts of Vanity Fair's Little Gold Men podcast. Every week, we cover the ups and downs of the Oscar race, from Barbenheimer to the Golden Globes controversy, and much more. We also have weekly interviews with some of the year's biggest contenders, like Emma Stone, Paul Giamatti, and America Ferreira. Whether you're a Hollywood insider or just want to win your office's Oscar pool, Listen to Little Gold Men, available on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening now. But now I want to jump ahead to Crumb because, like, we're going all the way from the world of artifice and comedy to the world of documentary. Like, mm. I like that you said, I have to have a documentary. And Crumb is the documentary that you picked. Crumb! From 1995, it is a documentary film, yay documentaries, uh, written and directed by Terry Zweigoff. It is about the underground comic artist R. Crumb and, well, a lot of what's going on in his life. He has a, a, a lot of problems in the present day and a real reverence for the past. Crumb himself, he's a complicated man, but most of all, he's an individual, a very unique individual. So this doc, I think, is so special as an insight into a unique kind of filthy brain where you don't want to live but you do want to visit people now don't even have any concept that there ever was a, a 
culture outside of this thing that's created to make money. Whatever's the biggest, latest thing, they're into it. You know, so you just get disgusted after a while with humanity for not having more kind of like, you know, intellectual curiosity about, you know, what's behind all this jive bullshit. Crumb had more impact on me than any documentary I've seen. Terry completely gives himself over to a portrait of this man. There is no Terry Zweigoff in the movie other than the responses that he elicits in his subjects and his editorial choices and his musical choices. Mm -hmm. The rest of it is Robert Crumb, his two brothers, his wife, his former lovers, and his mother. And at the end, you have as comprehensive a portrait of an artist, warts and all, as any I've seen in either documentary or narrative, and as any biography I've ever read. It is a monumental feat. And you get the sense, and this is the wonderful adventure that great documentaries can foreground or posit, but you get the sense that Terry didn't know where it was going when he set out to make the movie. And so many documentaries are burdened with that sort of agenda. And this one isn't. He cannot have known what those brothers really were going to be like. And he cannot have known what the mother was going to be like. I don't care how well he knew Robert Crumb. And so I don't feel any agenda in the filmmaking that preceded the making of the movie. I feel like he found the movie as he was making it. Well, and what you're saying about this film capturing, you know, the portrait of the middle-aged artist, I guess. Did you see this when it came out? Because I'm thinking of you at this time in your life as well. Like, you're finding out who you want to be as an actor. You know, at this time, you're voicing a cockroach in Joe's apartment. You're thinking you want to start directing movies. Did this connect to you in that way? I saw it when it came out in the movie theater, and I, I was with my at the time, girlfriend, now wife. And I'm not a pretentious, precious person, I promise you. (laughs) But I said, we've got to part for a while while I process what we just saw. And so we spent a few hours apart. And I just walked around absorbing the movie and thinking about it. Because most of all, What I took from the movie then, and I take different stuff from it now, but what I took from the movie then in a very solipsistic way was that it was an artist, it was was the portrait of an artist who refused to compromise with brothers who also refused to compromise in each of his way and what it cost each of them. And with the brothers, really, it costs them their sanity. And with Crumb, it almost cost him his sanity. And yet he clung to his own truth. Even when Hollywood was calling him and asking to do this and that, and even when conventions all around him were asserting themselves as his nemesis, as nemesis to everything that he found important. And his conduct 
in the way that he saw the world and then realized that on the page was so unbelievably true and disciplined. If you think about how he had a book full of phone poles and the wires connecting them and all the signage and, and detritus everywhere uh, on our streets. And he just had a notebook devoted to that stuff, just to phone poles and signs and uh, lamp, you know, electrical street lamps and uh, electrical condensers so that he could, so that he had that for when he wanted to draw an urban setting and he was in his studio. Just that simple fact that was explored in the movie was so instructive. Now I also think it's so generous of Terry to put that in the movie and to think to put that in the movie and give that some real estate. But at the time when I saw it, it just said to me, buddy, if you want to do this, you better take yourself very, very seriously. And sometimes at great cost. Otherwise, don't fucking bother. I mean, that could not be a better transition to the final film on our list. You've picked a Kubrick, Barry Lyndon. And as you're talking about that, I'm thinking about a story from when uh, Kubrick directed Eyes Wide Shut. He went to New York because he had to duplicate the New York streets in England. And he walked the distance between newspaper boxes and measured it to make sure he had his streets in New York exactly right when he duplicate, duplicated them. I mean, talk about a director who never compromised, ever, ever. And here making a film where he tried to compromise as little as possible and was in a position not to have to because of 2001. I mean, Barry Lyndon, a film that's not on the AFI list. Barry Lyndon, directed by Stanley Kubrick, comes out in 1975. It stars Ryan O'Neill and Marissa Berenson. It is the story of an Irish rogue who wins the heart of a rich widow and assumes her dead husband's aristocratic position in 18th century England. Good evening, Mr. Barry. Have you done with my lady? I beg your pardon. Come, come, sir. I'm a man who would rather be known as a cuckold than a fool. I think, Sir Charles Linden, that you've had too much to drink. Well, so there's a lot. You can knock Barry Linden. Mm-hmm. And without naming names, there's, there's a performance in there that's very easy to knock. Shunt that aside. Shut any complaint aside you have about the movie. The other one that people bring up is the, the, the Zooms. Right. There was a revolution at the end of the 18th century in France. Barry Lyndon shows you why it happened. Now, I say that, and that's not even the point of the movie, but its depiction of what I'll call the Rococo world once Barry Lyndon gets onto the continent. But even before that, when you're learning about the class stratification that plagued life in England at the time and what it meant really to strive and all the societal vulnerabilities that the class system in England caused. But the examination of that plus Europe before the French Revolution in the in the um, 18th century. What I love most about Barry Lyndon, in addition to the Rake's Progress 
story that it tells uh, is its attention to detail on two levels. One, every piece of production design, every piece of clothing anyone wears, every prop that's ever in the hand of an actor, every fucking dray horse seems of the 18th century. Everybody also knows that he had lenses built with the help of NASA so that he could open the aperture wide enough to film with only natural light or candlelight at night. That pays off beautifully because you simply feel like you're there. But there's a meticulousness on another level that to me is even more impressive. And that's that he really studied 18th century painting. And the story is told in the context of how people and things were depicted back then. And so the movie works really brilliantly on these two levels. It's almost like, yes, it's a movie, but somehow it's told in the medium of 18th century painting. Mm. And it's a great story. And I think that as a drama, there may be other movies that approach it in terms of impact and meaning, but there's none that exceed it. And there is, there's none that exceeds it. And there's none that is more accomplished in terms of unifying form and content in the pursuit of a narrative drama. I mean, I can definitely see the appeal for you. I think of you a guy as a as an actor who so naturally steps into period roles, you know, like old Henry, you know, that you really love to embody different eras and mentalities, people who think and act differently than our culture today. But I can't help but wonder, would you have wanted to do a film with Kubrick and and go through the procedure of being with a perfectionist who loves all those takes? Well, I know people who were in Eyes Wide Shut. Um, I actually have a friend who was fired from it. Uh, but yes, um, I, I absolutely would have. Uh, and, and it's a, it's a great regret. Uh, you know, I don't, I've worked with some really eccentric directors. Mm-hmm. I worked with a director once who did two things that were really funny. He, he had a God mic. And so he would sit at a monitor and then there was a speaker on set. And he would direct you in front of the whole crew over loudspeaker. That same director also publicly gave me the, pre- <laughs> the following piece of direction. Okay, that was great. Now do it again and don't move your lips. <laughs> <laughs> did, did, you, did you do it? Not do it? Yeah, I mean, so that, that was a movie and most of the cast was young. And there were two of us who were older actors on the movie, which is to say, I think we were both in our 50s at the time. And um, I'm still in my 50s. Maybe I was in my late 40s. I don't, I don't, I don't remember. Uh, and the younger actors just fucking hated this guy. To me, and I'm not, I think they'll have the same attitude that I have now when they're old. So I'm not knocking them. I actually liked all the actors in this movie. Loved them. Great people. I want to work with all of them again. But they just said, how dare he? And my attitude was, what a fucking adventure. This is hilarious. Right. 
working this way. This is, this is a new one. All right. I'll not move my lips. All right. You know, I'm being derided publicly. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's okay. You know, so 78 takes from Stanley Kubrick. It sounds like a really cool adventure to me. There's something interesting about it because it's it's losing your ego, right? It's to a certain extent of you are a a part of somebody else's machine and giving over to that and giving over to doing it a way that you may not even know what you're doing but they're seeing something on the other side like it's it's like a trust there too. I because I've been in those positions where I feel like you get self-conscious, well they're not liking what I'm doing or but maybe the idea should be like I'm doing what they want. Like, I'm going to follow this thing. It's like, I, it's a hard, it's a hard balance. I think to always drive. Cause we always feel like we know how to do something or we want to do something our way. But you know, it's, it's an interesting thing to get and give over to somebody else's full vision. It's, it's essential. And I yeah. got, to, I was privileged enough to, to learn it fairly early on in my thirties uh, because I did pretty much cause I directed a movie in between Mm-hmm. But I did um, Thin Red Line. Right. And then I went to direct a movie. And then when I was, when I was finishing that, I did Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And so I worked effectively as an actor with Terrence Malick and then the Coens. So I'll talk about Joel and Ethan first. Everything is storyboarded and you're given the storyboards as an actor. Oh, wow. And everything that's on the page is what they shoot, particularly in terms of the dialogue, because they've been so meticulous about every word. And so if I even wanted to change, you know, put, put a prepositional phrase, a subordinate clause in a different part of a sentence, I would go usually to Ethan and say, may I do this? And I think I did it twice. It was, uh, you know, and he said, thought about it and said, yes, but it's that kind of rigor and it's that kind of utterly benign, utterly gentle dictatorship. And, and you want, you want it. I mean, it's, 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 you know, no, it's great. It's fantastic. Now on Terry's movie. So in terms of the storyboards, you would be in a scene in which you would have the lion's share of the dialogue and the other characters just mainly listening to you and and saying a couple of words. And Terry would go in and he would do a master shot that favored the listener and then a close-up of the listener and then move on and never do any coverage of you. And sometimes you were in the position of being in the listener and sometimes you were the guy with all the lines. Or you'd get to set, and this is a quote out of his mouth, And it was an important scene for you. And he would say, well, let's not get proprietary about the lines. And he would give your lines to somebody else. You would have a scene (laughs) scheduled for a day and you'd get a call sheet and you were on hold, not called. Wow. And I was on that movie for five months. And it's how can you, you know, Terry, the other movie that I was considering other than Barry Lyndon was Days of Heaven. I mean, I, I think this is one of the great filmmakers and I don't, and I love Terry. We're friends now. Um, became friends in that process, 
But talk about leaving your ego at the door. It was tough. And I'm grateful for having gone through that. But it was tough. The idea that you were also shooting with people who were just completely cut out of the movie, too, which I imagine you were working alongside of them as well on some level like that, that idea that like and it doesn't seem like it was from. Well, I mean, you probably know more, but bad performances. It just felt like did they weren't necessary anymore to this the story that was eventually being put together. No, I mean that's exactly it. wasn't There was one actor, and I won't name him mm-hmm. because I think he would tell this story, but I don't. I don't want to say anything sure. out of school. He had a scene, um, and this is a wonderful actor. I almost put him in my first movie, and he. He was unavailable. And if I say more, you'll figure out who it is. Um, But uh, he had a very good reason for not doing my movie. Let's just put it that way. Um, But uh, he had his biggest dialogue scene, which eventually was cut out of the movie. It's the reason he did the part, in addition to the fact that it was Terrence Malick. Sure. And he did the scene, and they shot it all day. And then they reshot it at Magic Hour, which is what Terry does. So the day is really a rehearsal, and then you shoot at Magic Hour, even though they film all day. Um, and and Terry said, "Okay, cut. You know that's a wrap." And he said, "Fuck. You know I'm working with Terrence Malick. I have to have more than that. I have to get right. some. This was my big scene. I have to get something." I think the scene was with Sean. And so he goes up and just, you know, pathetically to him, I don't think it's pathetic, right. said, Terry, you know, how was it? And Terry said, you know, it was fine. But as soon as you actors open your mouths, I just don't believe a word of it. I just sometimes I wish that that I could do a whole picture without dialogue. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I mean, I feel like, Tim, this conversation has given me a sharper insight into your career, which I just I always love. I think you just have such smart, eclectic choices. I feel like now I really see you as an artist who admires directors who create a distinctive tone. I do. Yeah, that's what it's all about to me. I do. I thank you for bringing forth three films that I think have very, very distinctive tones. These are wonderful choices. Well, thanks for including me in your project. Yeah, this has been amazing. Thank you so, so much. Can I ask Um, one one last dumb question about Old Henry? Do you mind? Not at all. Tim, on screen, I think you have just some of the absolute best period facial hair. Is, Is any of that yours or is it all glue? That was all mine. Really? And I'll tell you a tiny bit about that. I'm, and, then, and then I'm going to be accused of being a bloviator. Um, I had grown a huge beard for that part. And I was also cast in Guillermo del Toro's Nightmare Alley, which is coming out, uh, out later this year. And we went back and forth about the goddamn beard because I needed it for Old Henry, which I was going to shoot right after Nightmare Alley. Literally going from his set to Nashville. One day in New York and then to Nashville. And he said, you've got to shave the beard. And he had a reason for this that I don't want to spoil. Sure. Um, And so I said, fuck, all right. 
but please may I keep the mustache? And he said, yes. And we made this agreement before I went up to Toronto to shoot. So I went through my two weeks of solitary quarantine and show up on set a few days before we're supposed to shoot. And he says, lose the mustache. (gasps) And I said, look, this dovetails back in. I said, I'm not going to pout. You know, I'll do it. But you're going to consign me to glued on facial hair in my next part. Worst. And I can deal with the beard, but the glued on, it, it just... It, it, it inhibits facial movement and, you know, please, please. And I begged him to be able to keep the mustache. And um, he allowed it. And so when you see Mightmare Alley, you'll see that mustache show up as well. Very different character, very different <laughs> hair, everything else very different. But uh, it's mine. Yeah. I don't, I don't like the glued on facial hair. It's really uncomfortable all day i'm a wimp when it comes to that yeah it gets it gets really annoying yeah. uh and I you're love very it. macho and growing very macho and growing congratulations and i'm glad that you fought for that facial hair and that was tim in his fantastic choices uh thank you tim for bringing those to our attention uh and yes his movie old henry a dark 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 and as we now know, Harry Western. Check that out and check out any of these films if you haven't seen them. You are guaranteed to step into the mind of a real auteur. 